Welcome to the Water's Edge Podcast, a ministry out of Water's Edge Community Church in the heart of Houston, Texas. We hope that through this teaching, you'll find out more about the surprising, satisfying life that can be found in following Jesus. For more information about our church or teaching resources, head to watersedgehouston.org, all one word. Now for this week's podcast. Will we wind down the book of Galatians uh, today and one final message uh, next week. And it's been a kind of a fresh reminder, I think, of how crucial, crucial it is that the gospel, the true gospel, be kept intact. Because if it's not, we run the danger that Chad Walsh speaks of, and he, sa- he writes this, he says, I suspect that Satan has called off his attempt to convert people to atheism. After all, if a man travels far enough away from Christianity, he's always in danger of seeing it in perspective and deciding it's true. It's much safer from Satan's point of view to vaccinate a man with a mild case of Christianity so as to protect him from the real disease. And he's spot on with that. The greatest adversary to Christianity has always been churchianity. Always has been. From the very first letter that Paul writes, the book of Galatians, this is what he's fighting. This is what is is boiling up within him. Because Paul understood, I think better than any of the other apostles, that if what was happening in Galatia allowed to continue on, then Christianity would be nothing more than the dry, withered kind of Judaism out there. It would just be the Jesus sect of Judaism. And the real thing, is too dynamic, is too vibrant, is too irrepressible to be kept under wraps. And the book of Galatians is Paul's head-on attack to say, wait, we're in this for the real thing. Let's be sure we don't get sidetracked on what we call legalism. So what we want to look at this morning is is verses 11 through 15 of uh, chapter 6, and then next week we'll finish out the, the book itself. This is a fascinating section of Scripture, because essentially what we're going to find is ministry can be done two ways. It can be done two ways. And so, John, we'll go ahead and just begin in verse uh, 11 and begin working our way through. So as he's wrapping things up, he he says, see with what large letters I've written to you with my own hand. Wherever Paul went, he was opposed. Wherever dynamic, vital Christianity goes, it will be opposed. Various means. And one of them is that they were dogging him, one on, on who Paul thought he was. He really wasn't an apostle, so you have some attacks there. But sometimes he's just saying, it's not really Paul writing these letters. It's somebody else pretending to be Paul. And so Paul writes and says, you know what? You know me. See with what large letters I've written to you with my own hand. And Paul speaks of having a thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians. And, and many commentators, and I think they're probably right, have, have uh, surmised that that may well have been an eye problem of some kind, so that as he's writing these letters, they're particularly large. Earlier he said in chapter 4, I bear witness that at the beginning you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me, if you could have. So most likely that's, that's the, the flesh, uh, the, the thorn in his flesh, but simply he's, he's authenticating what he's been saying. And then we move on here in verse 12. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh... These would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Next verse. 
For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So let's go back to verse 12. I want to suggest three things about flesh-driven spirituality versus spirit-led spirituality. Flesh-driven ministry versus spirit-led ministry. The big difference between being driven and being led. He said in, earlier in Galatians, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the ones keeping the law. The Spirit of God leads, never bullies. The flesh pushes. The flesh uh, <coughs> uh, tries to, in its own strength, pull it off. So number one, flesh-driven spirituality is, is self-glorifying. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh. And this is the only time this Greek word for good showing is found. And basically, it means to uh, be attractive uh, on the outside, on the face, so to speak. And basically, people look in, and what they're most impressed by is not the God who's behind your works, but the works themselves. And so this is something Jesus relentlessly called the religious leaders of the day out on. And Paul did the same thing. And we just read of it in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the central document of the new revolution of the king. It was basically a stump speech. He gave it all over. But Matthew 5 through 7 is essentially the kingdom manifesto. And it hemorrhages with the idea of surprise. All of it is about living a kind of surprising spirituality that provokes curiosity and then makes the gospel more uh, uh, wanted to be, be heard. <clears throat> and one of the things he says there is, when you pray, do not pray as the Pharisees who pray, why? so they can be seen by men. I say unto you, they have the reward. It's a unique Greek word that means uh, paid in full. And every one of these things, whether it was the giving of alms, whatever it was, it was done, it was driven by wanting to be seen by men. And as I said, that's where Jesus <coughs> goes straight after him because that's not what this thing's about. This thing is wholly and completely about one thing. It's not that complicated. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus' life. It's about his death. It's about his resurrection. It's about his indwelling spirit. It's about you and I becoming burning bushes in the 21st century reflecting the person of Jesus. But that's not ever reflected through legalism. Never is. Second thing we find here is that it's uh, pressure-driven. Notice this phrase. These would compel you to be circumcised. Very, very strong word for basically grabbing you and throwing you to the ground. These would compel you. Very, very pressure-oriented. The one place that you should never feel pressure is church. The one place you should never feel pressure if it's a spirit-operative church, is church. Why is that the case? Because Jesus never pressured anybody. Jesus invited. Sometimes he rebuked. Sometimes he challenged. But never, ever do you find him pressure. Rather, it was inviting. Come unto me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and you'll find rest Take my yoke upon you, why? For it's, it's light and my burden is easy. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He never said in Revelation 3.20, he never said, Behold, I stand at the door and 
and pound. No, he just says, I'm not. So he invites. And that's really how the church should be operating. Not so much telling you what you should do, but just asking, how's the Lord leading you in this? What are you hearing from him? Now, obviously, the scripture is very directive, and we're not taking away from that. But everybody has their own individual walks of the Lord, and the legalist loves, loves to let you know what those are. Do you have a quiet time early in the morning or late at night? Can you listen to just Christian music, or can you let a little secular movie music come in? I mean, there's all kinds of different things that are between that person and God. And one of the, I think the greatest things we can do is help people to hear the voice of God for themselves. And then the final thing we find here, it's performance-based, and that's in verse 13. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. That's really not a big issue in our day, but basically what you're finding here is they, they want to be able to show very specific metrics that show that they've been involved in seeing the will of God done in one's life. So what does that mean? It's a, it's a fascinating thing when you get around a group of pastors that don't know each other. And they start trying to kind of feel each other out, see how spiritual they are. What are the questions? So um, how big is your church? Oh, only 50? Oh, okay. Obviously, you're not doing the will of God. 5,000? Well, you must be compromising somewhere to have that many people. Where'd you go to seminary? How many people on staff? How big's your budget? How many baptisms last year? Every one of those is a definable metric that can be sized up. What does Paul do in the book of Galatians? What are his metrics? Remember this? They're nebulous because the metrics are this. Love and joy and peace and long-suffering and goodness, and kindness, and gentleness, and self-control. But above all else, as we just saw in that wonderful video, love. Love. Colossians 2 has a fascinating passage on this. He says, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations. Next verse. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. This was true spirituality in that day. What you touch, what you eat, what you handle, this determined how spiritual you are. Next verse. Which all concern things which perish with the using. In other words, once you die, you'll never see those things again. According to the commandments and the doctrines of men. And then look at this verse. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in what? What? Self-imposed religion. This was not spirit-led. This is imposed upon, and it, it appears spiritual, false humility, neglect of the body, but are of no value against what? The indulgence of the flesh. The flesh of the older brother in the story of the prodigal son 
who was exactly this person. Lo, I've served you these many years. I've never transgressed any of your commandments, A, B, C, D, E. It was as fleshly as his younger brother. It was just better disguised. It was just better disguised. And that's why, why do you think it is that Jesus goes so hard after the religious leaders in ways that he never does the prostitutes or the drunkards? Why do you think he never cleared out a bar, but he certainly cleared out the temple? That's exactly the issue. It's because these people are representing God. And he could not stand idly by while God's name, what God is really like, is being so badly, badly mis, uh, misrepresented, which is exactly what Paul is doing. He calls them out. But then he moves on to the positive side, and that is what does um, spirit-led ministry look like? So we start with this in verses 14 and go on to 15. So he just finished saying that those that they boast in the flesh, and notice what, what he says. I love this. He says, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So the first characteristic of spirit-led Christianity is that it's cross-based. It's cross-based. Notice he says, but God forbid that I should boast. Let me just read to you. John Stott has a tremendous book called The Cross of Christ. It's very well worth the read. And in there he talks about this word boast. It's the Greek word kakomai. And he says this, and he's exactly right. He says kakomai. There is no exact equivalent in the English language to this word. It means to boast in, to glory in, to trust in, to rejoice in, to revel in, to live for. The object of our boast or glory fills our horizons, engrosses our attention, and absorbs our time and energy in a word our glory is our obsession. We all have an obsession, every one of us. And what Paul is saying is, my obsession was Jesus and particularly him crucified. Now, I recognize that in saying this, this is very familiar territory. I doubt there's anybody here who hasn't heard of the cross of Christ, his death on the cross probably from the day you entered into a church you heard about. It. And that's a wonderful thing. But here's the danger. Things can become so familiar, they can become so um, repeated over and over and over again that they begin to lose the power that they rightly hold. And so let me just say this. Just because something is common in the sense it's ordinary that you've heard it all the time doesn't mean it's not extraordinarily powerful. The most powerful thing in Christianity is the person of Christ and more specifically, the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. And so this is why he says, I'm a fanatic on letting people know not just what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing, but I'm a fanatic on letting them know what Jesus did for them. In the middle 1700s, the very first missionary to the American Indians was a man named David Brainerd. Brainerd got kicked out of Harvard uh, for, as a student, saying in a private conversation with some other students, this professor has no more grace than this chair, and the word got out, and uh, he got kicked out <laughs> for that. Things have changed a little bit. But tremendous, tremendous 
power, passion and zeal for the Lord. And he would go out into the, uh, the territory where he would had several d- different Indian uh, groups that he was talking to. And uh, a lot of times he, he couldn't speak the language, so he had a translator who spoke it. And about half the time, the translator was drunk. But God's power and his word still broke through. I want you to, to hear what he, he writes in his diary in this regard, because I think it really hits on what we're talking about. He says, I never got away from Jesus and him crucified. I found that when my people were gripped by this great evangelical doctrine of Christ and him crucified, now listen to this, I had no need to give them instructions about morality. I found that one followed as sure and inevitable fruit of the other. I find my Indians begin to put on the garments of holiness and their common life begins to be sanctified even in small matters when they are possessed by the doctrine of Christ and Him crucified. You know what he's saying? They needed to clean up their act, but that's not what I talked to them about. I talked to them about Jesus and Him crucified. And when they were gripped, as he says, by this great evangelical doctrine, the rest took care of itself. It's the perfect uh, example of C.S. Lewis's great quote. Put first things first, and you get second things thrown in. Put second things first, and you lose both first and second. Number one, the cross. The cross. And I just say again, as I have many times, look long at the cross. Look often at the cross. Let the cross become our obsession. Because that is the last place that Satan wants us looking. It's the last place he wants us thinking about because there is such inherent power in what happened on that cross 2,000 years ago. What does the cross do for us? A couple of things. One, it humbles our souls. The most important commodity in our life is brokenness and humility. And nothing breaks us, nothing humbles us more than seeing the Son of Man, arms stretched out, saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, and we recognize, as John Stott put it, we have to start with the cross of Christ, realizing not what he's done for us, but what we did to him. Because we put him on the cross. We put him on the cross. Secondly, purifies our lives. As uh, At the foot of the cross, apathy and greed and lust are seen as the noxious weeds that they are. And we recognize that he died for those weeds. It cleanses our conscience. Shakespeare said, to be alone with my conscience is hell enough for me. I think a lot of times we can know that that's true. What can take away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can take away our shame? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can take our guilt away our guilt? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is why we, we serve the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Most important part of the service. And I love that most, that really all of you, just take your time. And come to it reverently, having prepared yourself well for it. Um, It deepens our gratitude. If Jesus hadn't done a single other thing for us in the entirety of our lives, coming and dying on that cross is worth an eternity of gratitude just in and of that. And it answers our doubts, and our doubts especially about this. God, how can you say that you love me when my child 
with a disability. How can you say that you love me when I lost my wife at so early an age? How can you say you love me when life is so hard for me on a daily basis with the different things you've entrusted to me? How can you say you love me when there's, there's no money to be seen anywhere? And he only has one answer, and that's the cross. The cross answers for all time the question, do you love me? The cross is our wedding ring. It's our wedding ring. And this is why Paul was so laser-focused on being sure that he stayed with the cross. Because doctrine can win an argument, but only love can win a heart. Let me say it again. Doctrine can win an argument, but only love can win a heart. And my friends, there is no love in the universe more radical, more irrational, more relentless, more absurdly unconditional than the love of God through Jesus Christ on the cross. Make much of the cross, make much of the cross, make much of the cross. And the final thing that we see is that it's not just cross-based, but it's Christ-exalting. God forbid that I should boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ earlier. He'd say, he, in fact, in verse 15, he's going to say, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. We'll talk about this next week. Nothing makes the gospel an issue more than a changed life. And that's what he means here. The point of the gospel is to turn our lives upside down so men and women look in and say, I wonder what kind of God he belongs to, she belongs to. I can't believe that they're like that now, in a good way, in a good way. So I finish with what is one of my favorite examples of the power of the cross, and I think it's a, a profound one. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, one of the most well-known writers of the Western world, um, did not grow up a Christian. And he actually didn't become a Christian until he went to a Soviet gulag in a uh, Boris Cornfield, a fellow prison, uh, prisoner who had become a believer, led him to the Lord, and then died the next day. And um, Solzhenitsyn would read his Bible and, you know, was growing as a believer, but, but things got worse and worse and worse in that gulag. And there came a day in which he was working out on the field, and he just said, you know what, I, I, I just can't go on anymore. I'm ready to go home. So he went to the side of the field. There was a bench. He sat down on it, and he just dropped his head and waited for death to come. Because what that, he'd seen it happen many times, and that is that the Soviet soldier will come with a shovel and give you one chance to get up and get back to work. And if you don't, then he'll bludgeon you right there. And he'd seen that happen several times but it's okay, he was ready to go. And so as he's sitting there with his head down, waiting for death to come, an old man came across the field with a stick. And he came right in front, he didn't say anything to Solzhenitsyn, but with that stick, he drew a line this way, and then he drew a line this way, and he walked away. And Solzhenitsyn said, when I saw the cross, I realized I'm on the winning side. This empire will not stand forever. And ultimately, the cross of Christ and the kingdom of God is going to win out. And I want to be part of seeing that happen.
and he got back up, went back to work. World's never been the same. Make much of the cross, make much of the cross, make much of the cross. But as I close, the most important question I would propose or ask is this. Are you absolutely 100% certain that you're on your way to this place called heaven? Put it another way. If you and I were to die tonight and go before God and he was to say, why should I let you in? What would you tell him? What would you tell him? I hope you wouldn't tell him anything about your life, about your sincerity. I hope that what you would tell him is what I would say, and that is the only reason you should let me into heaven is that Jesus died for my sins, and you said that's enough. And that's all that I'm going to trust in. And if you've never done that, I, I went to church for many years before age 17, I made that decision. I just want to invite you uh, right where you sit, just to pray, pray along with me. Lord Jesus, I realize that I'm not the person I could have been or should have been, but I thank you for dying for all my sins. And right here, right now, I just gratefully receive that gift. Thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you for guaranteeing me a place in heaven. And now I ask you to come and live inside of me, change me, as only you can. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. I'll go back to offer the Lord's Supper, and then we'll finish with one last song.